Around four, the clouds cleared. We were able to see the full moon across the valley. I was part of something bigger. I was part of a movie. Next morning, we wake up to the sight of perfect swells coming off the point. And from then on, I said, I will always buy the last round of drinks. At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We are activists and dreamers. Stories of the fabric of our shared culture, and we're proud to sponsor the Dirtbag Diaries. Visit us at Patagonia.com. Last fall, I was procrastinating. Just once, I swear. Really. And anyway, I was doing what you do when you procrastinate. I was reading about other people's trips when I came across this headline on the Alpinist. First ascent of the southwest ridge of Sagunyang. Cool, straightforward. It's an alpine ridge in the greater Himalaya. I'll read about that. I'm procrastinating after all. Sweet. On September 21st through the 30th, Chad Kellogg and I, this is climber Dylan Johnson writing this, completed the first ascent of the southwest ridge. We climbed a direct line through vertical crack systems with free climbing up to 511 and much A2, complicated by grass and moss in the cracks. Uh, let's see, let's skim ahead a little bit. Day 6, the weather worsened to sleet with near zero visibility. Day 7, the weather continued to provide snow flurries and no visibility. We enjoyed absolutely classic alpine ridge climbing. Hang on. I love how in, in alpine climbing writing, it's the only time you'll ever find the words whiteout and enjoy in the same paragraph. Anyway, the story goes on like this. It sounds pretty standard for alpine climbing. It was hard, it got dark, it snowed, there was a storm. Standard, right? I kept reading, though, because after all I was procrastinating. And right at the end, something caught my eye. Almost as an afterthought, Dylan Johnson writes, I lost 30 pounds during the climb. Chad, over 20. That's when the record player, spinning around in my mind, went, 30 pounds? Sagunying or the fourth maiden, took five pounds of flesh a day from Dylan and Chad. When the price of admission starts to get that high, you don't want to just climb a mountain. You need to climb that mountain. All climbing routes, all river descents, all bike tours, journeys to distant places, all these things lend themselves to story. They're perfect metaphors for life. They have beginnings and ends. Their struggles and small victories. Usually they become campfire tales, but sometimes a root, a mountain, becomes more than a metaphor. You know, this was, it was a quest. It's an experience of just that mountain. Everything's reduced. It was a, it was a lot like blue collar work, you know. And he's like, what's that humming? And I sort of leaned in next to him and his, he had a ski pole on his back. And it was making this really intense sort of high voltage buzz you get when you walk underneath power lines. In order to solve the problem, you have to become the solution. Today, we are headed to the edge of the Himalaya, to the western ranges of China. We bring you The Cowboy and the Maiden, a story about friendship, loss, and a truly epic route. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. John Muir wrote, When mountains speak, wise men listen. Sometimes a specific peak, 
It will capture our imagination. It will talk to us. The peak's profile burns its way into our psyche. It becomes a part of our life. My wife, Laura, first heard about Sigunyang from Charlie Fowler in 1996. She's like, wow, you know, tell me more. And so he told her about, he's like, you got to go check this place out. It's incredible. It's in the Sichuan region in China. Um, you know, you should definitely go make a trip out there. This is Chad Kellogg. He lives alone in a one-bedroom mother-in-law unit behind the Seattle house he owns but rents out. Photos of mountains dot the walls like ever-present motivation. At nights, after full days of pounding nails and working out, he comes home to sleep in an altitude chamber. Tonight, even though we're a few hundred feet above sea level, he will be dreaming at 15,000 feet. He owns or has owned speed records on both Denali and Mount Rainier. He's climbed extensively throughout the world. But the peak that's captured his attention for the last five years is Sugunyang. It's actually a sub-range of four peaks known as the Four Maidens. But the highest of this sub-range is a massive uprising of alpine granite capped with snow and jumbled seracs. In 2005, Chad and his wife, Lara, were climbing in the Himalaya. And then on the way home, <clears throat> we're like, okay, you know, we have a week left. Let's go check out this place in Sigunyang. And we went up the valleys of the Changping, and Sigunyang was just bluebird, you know. It was just sticking out in this bluebird sky, just like this massive peak. And I just looked up, and I was just smitten. Peak made an incredible impression on the couple. Later that year, while Lara was finishing up a master's degree at the University of Washington, Chad returned with friends Joe Perrier and Stoney Richards to tempt the massive face. They climbed a few new routes on the outlying peaks, but Sigunyang's fickle weather shut down their attempts. Sitting in base camp, the trip coming to a close, Joe had a vision. Joe's like, man, we, you know, we're trying this, you know, big wall. He's like, but really, the alpine gem, the alpine cherry is the Southwest Ridge. Let's go after that. Five miles of climbing, gaining 10,000 feet to a high-altitude summit. Just to gain the ridge, would-be suitors would have to schwack up 2,500 feet of steep rainforest and then make the first ascent of a half-dome-sized granite wall. It would require high-end free climbing, technical ice ability, superior conditioning, and a perverse tolerance for suffering. It was an alpine climber's wet dream. A year passed. Chad and Laura made plans in Alaska. But Chad also had applied for a grant to turn to Sigunyang to attempt the Southwest Ridge. I was supposed to go with her, you know, to Alaska, but um, Joe and I decided that we'd, we'd apply for a grant for the McNeil Knot Award to go to Sigunyang, and we got it, and so we're like, okay, we're on. That spring, Chad would head for China, Laura to Alaska. They decided it was the last big trip they would do apart from one another. The weather was tumultuous, but Chad, Joe, and fellow climber Jay Janicek managed a new route up a 5,600-meter peak, a warm-up really, right next to Sigunyang. They humped loads up to 2,500 feet of steep jungle forest to the base of the main objective, the Southwest Ridge, before a series of storms sent them back to base camp to wait out the weather. Sitting down in base camp, I was talking to my friend Jay, and I, and I was just like, man. I was like, man, I hope Lara's okay. And I just had this, like, weird, weird feeling, you know. And uh, a couple days later, 
we're sitting there in base camp and horseman comes up and it's our um our guide from the village and he's like get your stuff right now pack your gear you're going back down to relong with me um there's been an accident in the ruth gorge and you know you need to be ready to travel back in relong chad began looking for answers he started making calls until he got a hold of alaskan climber mark westman and so i called mark and he's like dude you haven't heard yet and i was like haven't heard what he's like you know it's gonna be really hard for me to tell you but you know lara's lara's dead lara got killed in a climbing accident in the ruth gorge she wrapped off the end of her ropes on mount wake and i'm really sorry i was crushed i was just like oh shit this is like the end of life as i know it now circles of friends, they have a center, a person that catalyzes trips, laughter, and new friendships. Lara Karenina Kellogg was a beacon in the Seattle climbing community. Here's Dylan. I mean, she was just this perpetual ball of positive energy that, like, you just couldn't resist not hanging out with her. I mean, she was just so much fun to be around. And, I mean, it didn't matter if it was raining, if the skiing sucked if the ice climbing sucked or whatever it was like she was always psyched and pushing herself for dylan lara was a mentor and a close friend when you get in a i mean when you would get in a funk and you'd be working too much and sort of as soon as you if you if you ever started to complain about something she would totally call you out and be like well do something about it you know <laughs> quit working so much let's go climbing or you know she was she just lived like Full speed ahead, every second mattered, you know, so, yeah, amazing person. I just had all this, like, anger built up, and uh, and it was just eating away at me, you know. I didn't have any tools to deal with uh-huh. those kind of emotions, you know. It was just, it was too much for my, my skill set, my emotional skill set. I don't know, I had all these emotions and the only you know way that I could really think of getting past that was like to go back to Sigunyang. I just wanted to go back to Sigunyang like immediately and just like throw myself at the project and just try to apply myself to something so I could kind of take my mind off of the unrest. months following Lara's funeral, Chad made plans to return to China in the fall. He spent the summer training. Sometime in August, he began having health issues. It started getting serious. There was blood in his stool. I decided to stop into the emergency room on my way out of a town for a, for a climb. And they're like, man, you're, you need to go see you know, a specialist and find out what's going on with your intestines because it's not looking good. And so instead of blowing it off like I usually would, mm-hmm. I made an appointment to go see a specialist. And I went into the specialist like two weeks later, and they're like, yeah, you have stage two colon cancer, and we need to cut it out immediately. I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, well, I'm supposed to go to China in like five weeks. Is that going to put a damper on my trip? And they're like, just you might as well just forget about that right now. <laughs> just worry about survival because this is going to take precedent over anything else in your life. 
And after that, you know, I was kind of an emotional disaster. <laughs> you wouldn't wish that upon your worst enemy, right? You know, in the, period, in the span of uh, two and a half months, my wife died and I got cancer. And then, you know, the, the glimmer of hope that I had was going back to Sagunyang and that got dashed. The surgery was successful. The doctors managed to cut out the tumor, but the process was pretty debilitating. Chad approached it with the same determination. He approached mountains. At the end of three weeks, I started hiking. And, I, you know, first first outing, I went like three miles with like 200 vert. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just like psyched to be out. He took a temporary contracting job in Hawaii. He surfed, worked all day. Slowly, he got back in shape. Sagun Yang stayed at the forefront of his thoughts. A lot of ways, Chad and I got a lot closer just sort of instantaneously because we were, as a community, going through this really tragic, hard... Dylan had known Chad for years, but had always been closer to Lara. The next winter, with many of their mutual friends wintering in Patagonia, the two friends started climbing together. So we started trying stuff together and just totally hit it off. I mean, became just instant, instant good climbing partners, good friends. They spent that winter climbing together every weekend. And Chad eventually asked Dylan to help him finish Sagunyang. He kind of broke it down piece by piece, and I was sort of asking him about how he felt about it, if he thought it was reasonable and safe and everything, and um, totally sold me on it. They won the American Alpine Club's prestigious Lyman Spitzer grant. Their skills complemented one another perfectly. Dylan was a talented technical rock and ice climber. Chad was a machine, capable of shouldering huge burdens at high elevations in bad conditions. In order... To solve the problem, you have to become the solution. In order to solve 9,600 feet of Sagunyang, you had to bring the skill set that matched the challenge. Almost a year after Chad had been diagnosed with cancer, he was headed back to China. Sagunyang rises 10,000 feet above the Qianping Valley an increasingly popular trekking destination outside the small city of Rilong. The trail winds upward, where it runs alongside an old monastery, abandoned and destroyed during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. This time, the ruined temple was filled with workmen. Chad stopped to meet the Lama, to tell him his story and his dream of climbing Sagunyang. And he's like, come, you know, come and pray with me. I'll put this holy site and I'll give you a blessing for your climb. And that kind of really set the karma of the trip in motion, you know? It was just like, wow. Once camp was established, Dylan and Chad warmed up on a neighboring peak to acclimatize. The weather was perfect. In all the months that Chad had spent in the Qingping Valley, the longest window of sunshine he'd ever seen was four days. So we rushed back to base camp, geared up, and, you know, so far we've got like three days of good weather. And we're thinking, man, I hope we didn't just blow it. They began in earnest, up the vertical bushwhacking, and started climbing on virgin terrain. Whoever had the best skill set for that, you know, that segment was going to lead. And so Dylan led all 17 pitches of the wall, which was a tremendous feat. It turned out to be much more demanding. We brought two days worth of water with us, 
And at the end of the second day, we're not even halfway up the wall. So on day three, we had one liter left. They settled in for another uncomfortable night without food and water. I sat on the packs and Dylan sat kind of straddling my shoulders with his legs over my shoulders, uh-huh. sitting behind me, kind of like sloping, you know, sliding off the wall. And I, in the back of this chimney, I found like a wheelbarrow size amount of snow, which is enough for us to each drink like three liters of water, cook a meal, and then um, have two liters each. We hadn't eaten a meal in two days because we didn't have any water to cook it. They gambled that above this smooth, dead vertical granite face, the terrain would ease, the climbing would relent, and they could move super quickly. It might take a day or two from the top of the wall to get to the summit. At the top of the wall, you know, we kind of looked out and we're like, whoa, we have like miles and miles of technical knife edge ridge climbing ahead of us. We're not even close to being done with the technical difficulties, you know. But the weather window was holding. Now they had snow to melt for water, they had food, there was no real reason to retreat. If they could stomach the suffering, Dylan and Chad had a chance. We negotiated this series of gendarmes where we'd climb one gendarme and then wrap off the other side and then climb another gendarme and wrap off another side. Mm-hmm. We were each carrying 75-pound packs. It was, a, it was a lot like blue-collar work, you know. And so I was like, well, I do this every day. <laughs> but this is, you know, it's at 17,000 feet, it was worker. By the end of day five, we were at pitch 36. We had to go into the tent and have a discussion because we're like, man, we can, we're can we not going to succeed if we continue to carry 75-pound packs. It's just not going to happen. If they were going to succeed, they had to switch tactics, leave gear to reclaim on the descent. What they'd hoped for would be easy ground was, in fact, miles of technical rock climbing. A single set of cams and a single set of stoppers and five pins with us and like 40 feet of tat and one rope, one 60-meter rope. Reversing that was going to be difficult, and but we just committed to it, pulled the rope, and we're like, okay, we're going to find a way through this somehow. They were wicked. They were like these needles. They literally went up to like six-inch summits. We hit the section of, of ridge that was happy cowboy, where you have like a leg on each side of the ridge, and you're shimming along like over these notches and over these ribs. And the thing is, is if someone falls, you jump the opposite way and take, you know, the 30 meter whipper, which was okay. You know, we, we were okay with that as our protection. This granite was stellar. The bear glass wasn't slowing us down too much. We were at pitch 49 at the end of uh, day six. We looked up and there's just, you know, another mile plus of, of knife edge ridge left. I mean, did, did you ever think about bailing? I mean, it seems like you were pretty far out there. You'd been dehydrated. I, did, I mean, did that, did that ever come up in the conversation? Bailing? I mean, that was not an option. Like, our... Our motto was, you know, keep going unless there's a really good reason to turn around.
Mist swirled across the knife edge ridge, but the path was clear. Go up. It switched to ice and snow-covered rock. You know, fall in this great granite, and we were able to like, you know, hook our tools on the edge of the ridge. I mean, that's how wide it was, and then just like traverse right across, and it was just amazing climbing. I mean, phenomenal. It was, it was something like, you know, out of a mix between like Chamonix and Alaska climbing, but we're at like almost 18,000 feet. They dug in for night six. We'd been tied in, you know, for seven days, basically a week, to the rope, and we're still tethered. And we, you know, dug into our sacks and looked at our food and decided, okay, we have two meals left and, you know, 14 bars each. We have one shot at the summit. I mean, I think Chad totally sort of shined on our summit day. Didn't, you know, he was, he was really comfortable in bad weather at altitude and just kind of putting his head down and grinding it out. And, um, yeah, he just kind of, you know, just charging. He was just charging. And I think he could, you know, he could smell the summit. He knew he was, he knew he was getting close. So. We were in this whiteout. I mean, thick, thick fog, but you know, I felt positive. I was like, I think it's a go. And I was determined as heck to make it, you know, I was like, okay, this is the, the first real summit attempt I've got at this mountain. I'm not backing off. The climbing became trickier, the ridge more deceptive. By 3 p.m., they had no idea where the summit was. And then just for a moment, the clouds parted to reveal Sagunyang. The summit was a short distance away. But beyond that, five miles distant, a wall of storm, complete with visible lightning, loomed. They scrambled a short distance, and together, the two friends set out to complete a final act of love for Lara, Chad's wife, Dylan's friend, and mentor. I brought Lara's ashes with me because, you know, I wanted to share the summit experience with her in some way. So I uh, spread her ashes on top, and it kind of, kind of gave me some closure. It felt good, you know, it felt nice to be able to spread her ashes up there and have her be up there in that sacred place. I mean, it was amazing to be like, okay, man, we really made it. That's awesome. We definitely had a moment there spreading Lara's ashes. And um, and then it was like, okay, let's get down this thing. Getting off the massive ridge was no small task. It would mean rappelling and then reclimbing and traversing the ridge. They had to hurry. Their safety depended on it. I was leading the descent coming down, and um, the lightning was coming and hitting. I mean, we were descending the ridge, too, which was really exposed, and it started hitting the ridge, and his, he had a ski pole on his back, and it was making this really intense sort of high-voltage buzz you get when you walk underneath power lines or something and he looks at me and i got this ski pole on the back of my pack and it's just humming from all the electricity so i take the ski pole off i got i went down and i'm like chad i'm not going back on the ridge crest until there's no lightning for at least 20 minutes and he's like yeah man that's cool they paused the lightning storm passed the snow began dylan began climbing and uh, sure enough, it's like as soon as I got to the crest, the lightning just nailed this gendarme like 
I don't know, 50, 100 feet away or something. I mean, enough that just, it sent me just screaming along the ridge. And I can, I can paint out the rope and I can just feel the speed turn on <laughs> as, as the adrenaline's just surging on Dylan's end. And uh, so we zip across the Happy Cowboy and it's dark now. And so it's, we put our headlamps on and we began to descend. They needed to find a slender chute a body-width-wide couloir leading from the ridge to the snowfields below. This was their exit. And so we're, now we're in this just literal blizzard. It's just like dumping snow. It's windy. You know, visibility shut down, even worse than the fog. And we, we lost our way. We could not find the way down. Everything looked the same. It all was just steep, steep snow flutings that uh, descended into the darkness, into the abyss. They would have to spend the night out in the open. We're just going to have to go up and down, up and down, up and down to stay warm until it's light out. And so that's what we just did all night long. We just went down a rope length and then climbed back up. Went down a rope length, climbed back up. In the morning, they found the tiny escape. They had been 200 feet from it the entire night. Spread thin and running on a single bar for hours, they were out of control for the first time. They'd been awake for two days. That amount of food in the, in the state that we're in, we're not going to be able to make it back to our high cache. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to abandon all of our gear and rappel down a 3,000-foot face that we've never seen before. Two days later, they stumbled back into base camp. Dylan had lost his 30 pounds, Chad his 20. But Tsugunyang was complete. 10 days, 10,000 feet of climbing, spread across 5 miles of ridge. Dylan and Chad had completed an incredible feat of human endurance and technical skill. A gold stamp on any climber's career. They were happy cowboys. Neither one of us got bummed out. I mean, you may have like a down moment. You know, where you're like, oh boy, you know, there's still five miles left around pitch 30, you know, 72 pitches of climbing and every one of them, you know, was memorable and every one of them, you know, took something out of us, but in return gave us something back. Sagunyang, though, it was more than just a bullet point on an alpinist career. There will be other summits. Memories of thirst and hunger will fade. And the pitches, well, maybe they won't remember them quite as clearly. In June, Dylan is headed to Pakistan to try one of the last great puzzles of big mountain climbing. Chad broke his arm this winter and had to postpone a trip to the Himalaya, but he'll be back. Summits fade, but occasionally mountains and routes extend back into the bedrock, into life on level ground. Chad's a really stoic guy and, 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 but he knew and, and his friends and everybody knew that he kind of, he had to process the reality of Lara being gone. And I mean, it's cool. It's kind of, it's amazing how, I mean, Lara just in Chad's life and in, in our climbing partnership and friendship, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a daily, it's, it's, we talk about her sort of 
probably every day, multiple times. It's like, oh, Lara would have been stoked on this, or you know, Lara was did this, or oh, she she showed me this route or whatever. And so when we were in China, it was the same way. I mean, Chad was just telling me all these experiences she had he had with Lara, and, and you know, he pointed out places that they bivied or peaks that they climbed or valleys they explored, and it was way more than just Sigunyang. Part of the reason that the chain of events occurred, you know, was because I made the choice to go to China. And really, I needed to go back there in some ways to come to terms with, you know, everything that had happened and to have closure with everything that had happened. I mean, I my wife died and, you know, I was left with this hole in my life. And then I got cancer and it seemed like you know, my whole life was revolved around climbing, you know, for 25 years. I lost her and then I got cancer and it seemed like I would never be able to climb again. And then I was given this opportunity. I was given a second chance, if you will, at life. You know, this was, it was a quest. I think it meant a lot to him too. And, and, so that moment we shared on the summit when you know, we got to spread the ashes and it was, I don't know, it was a meaningful point in our relationship, you know, as friends. Um, it's hard to describe in words, really. Music today by Balmoria, EGADS, Los Fabulosos Cadillacs, Suburban Dark, and Home Video. You can stream the cuts and find the links to the artists on our site, dirtbagdiaries.com. We're on Facebook. We are also on Twitter. Is it possible to be a dirtbag in Twitter? Well, I don't know. I figured I would find out. If you want to contact us, though, the best way is always email. I love hearing from you all. Contact us at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. As always, a big thanks to the Diary sponsors, Patagonia. Their support makes these shows possible. Thanks for all of you out there who took the time and energy to let Patagonia knew what the Diaries meant to you. Check out their blog, thecleanestline.com. Thanks to Chad and Dylan for sharing their story with us today. I'm Fitzco Hall, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. <laughs> <laughs>